Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Let's pray. Father God, I pray I'd not get in the way of what you plan to do, but that your word would go forth today and accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. In Jesus' name. In our last time together, we looked at the troubling dream that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, experienced, and we saw how God, the revealer of mysteries, explained the meaning of the dream through his prophet Daniel. The dream detailed an image made up of five different sections of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay mixed with iron, representing five different world kingdoms that would, to one degree or another, affect the Jewish people over the course of time. The statue's head of gold symbolized Nebuchadnezzar's own Babylonian empire, and the chest and arms of silver represented the Medes and the Persians who would rule the region after them. The Greek empire that came third was depicted by the thighs of bronze, and the fourth, the Roman empire, was the legs of iron. A fifth kingdom was also described as the feet of the image, being a mixture of iron and clay. This embodied an unstable end-time kingdom that is still to come. Each of the first four empires dominated the region where the Jewish people lived, but after the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70, the Jewish nation was scattered across many nations of the world. It was only in 1948 that God gathered the Jews back to the land he had given them, and now that they have returned, we await the rise of the final empire depicted in the statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The dream also foretold that all of these kingdoms of men would eventually be destroyed by a stone that struck the base of the image. That stone was not something that had been fashioned by the hands of men, rather it came from the hand of God himself, and it represented Christ's kingdom that will fully appear on earth at his second coming. It's interesting to note that as far back as Genesis 49 verse 24, Jesus has been referred to as the stone of Israel. And when he comes again, the kingdoms of men will fall and his kingdom will extend over all the earth, as we see mentioned in the book of Revelation. It certainly didn't make complete sense to Nebuchadnezzar as Daniel spoke it, but he did seem to get the part about his kingdom. Apparently, his mind filled with thoughts of his own power and might. He must have been intrigued that his own kingdom was described as a head of gold, and he evidently began to wonder what it would look like if the whole statue were only made of gold. Perhaps his kingdom could be the one that ruled without end to the end of the ages. Perhaps his kingdom could be the one without end that ruled the ages. With that as our background, let's pick up the text in Daniel 3 verse 1 where 
King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 6 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. We're not specifically told what this image depicted. It may well have been a likeness of the god Marduk, who was the most important of the 50 or so false gods worshipped by the Babylonians. But it may have also been of Nebuchadnezzar himself. We do know that it was set up on the plain of Dura, which is believed to be south of modern-day Baghdad in Iraq. It was huge and would definitely have been hard to miss, and also a summons went out to all the king's officials scattered throughout the land demanding that they attend the dedication of this image. Because the Babylonian Empire stretched across so many lands, these officials would have been people of many nations and languages who had been pressed into the king's service like Daniel and his friends. They were summoned because their loyalty and submission to the king was extremely important to the success and continuance of his empire. It was crucial that they be at this dedication. Among those officials called to appear were Daniel's three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. It seems that Daniel was not with them at this time, and in fact, Daniel does not appear in chapter 3 at all. Verse 3. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. That was the simple directive to the assembled crowd. When the music starts, fall down and worship the gold image. If you don't, you'll be thrown alive into the furnace. And so it's not a surprise then that we're told in verse 7, as soon as they heard the sound of the music, all the peoples, nations and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. What's really going on here? Nebuchadnezzar is using the worship of the image to unite his empire and reinforce his own power and authority. Perhaps it was a shrewd political manoeuvre, but in reality he was acting in direct opposition to the God of Daniel and the truth so recently revealed in that troubling dream. He was refusing to accept that a greater king was at work in history and that his own kingdom of gold would be replaced by another. And he was insisting that all those in his kingdom serve his gods and worship as he decreed, even those who who belonged to the living God he now knew existed. Verse 8. 
At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Imagine the scene here. As the music played, every official of the Babylonian Empire began to bow down in worship of this image. All were kneeling with their foreheads pressed into the dust before them. But as the dust settled, it became evident that three officials were still standing, all of whom were Jewish. These three champions were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, now known by their Babylonian names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Even in the face of tyranny, they steadfastly upheld the truth that worship is due God alone. Unwilling to sacrifice their integrity or go against their consciences, they refused to kneel before anything other than their God. The other officials, of course, were quick to report them to the king. They reminded Nebuchadnezzar of his decree and declared that these three pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. So notice there were really three accusations made against them. They were charged with not showing due respect to Nebuchadnezzar, not serving the false gods of Babylon, and also defying the king's orders to worship the image. I must say that these men's willingness to obey God in the face of such terrible threats should really challenge us all. I'm convinced that many people might wonder, well, if they had bowed, what would have been the harm in that? After all, as long as they didn't believe in it, as long as the image meant nothing to them, surely God would have been okay with that. Surely God would have understood that they had to compromise in order to survive. In Scripture, God repeatedly calls us to stand firm. For example, in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 13, Paul encourages us, Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. We are not to compromise as far as obedience to the Lord is concerned, and we cannot obey the authority over us if their instructions conflict with the commands of the Lord. These men knew exactly what the cost would be, and I believe they anticipated Nebuchadnezzar's response. Look at verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? 
Apparently, the king and presumably Daniel had not been present at the initial dedication ceremony. Though he was enraged at the report, Nebuchadnezzar did decide to give them a second chance to obey his command to worship the image. But these three young men knew that to do so would be to directly break God's first commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 through 5. There God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol into anything in heaven above or on earth beneath, nor in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them nor worship them. Nebuchadnezzar was a man used to getting his own way and often Once again, laying out the punishment they faced, he showed utter contempt for their God, boasting that even God would be unable to stop him from carrying out his decision by declaring, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah calmly answered the king with respect, even though he didn't really deserve any. They did this to honor the Lord. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. You know, there's so much in what they say. They acknowledged that they really did not need to defend themselves in this matter. They'd known exactly what they were doing and why, and they had no excuses to offer. They told him that the God whom they served is able to deliver them from the fiery furnace. Did you notice they did not say that he will deliver them from the fiery furnace, only that he is able to deliver them. Then they added, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. You see, they knew that Nebuchadnezzar's authority over them was limited. At any time, God could intervene and deliver them from the situation. But even if he did not, Nebuchadnezzar's control over them could not extend beyond the grave. Dead or alive, they would ultimately be delivered from Nebuchadnezzar's hand, and they were willing to entrust themselves to God no matter what the outcome. Even if God did not intervene to spare their lives, they would not serve Nebuchadnezzar's gods nor worship the image of gold he had set up. You know, we need to personalize this because we too need to be willing to follow God his way, whether things go as we'd hoped or not. There will be disappointments in life. There will be hardships. There may very well be times of danger and intense suffering. Jesus told us that in this life we will have trouble. The question is, will we remain true to God, our Father, whether we get our way or not? These three young men were willing to obey God irrespective of the outcome. Jesus showed that same willingness to yield to the will of his father when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was arrested, tried and hung on the cross to die. Knowing the cup of suffering that awaited him, 
Jesus prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Our response needs to be exactly the same. Not my will, but yours be done, Lord. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were dedicated to the will of God, but I want you to notice that we are not specifically told that they were not afraid. The truth is they very may well have been afraid. I think, in fact, that would have even been understandable, don't you? Nelson Mandela once said, I learned that courage is not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. The brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers that fear. These three Jewish men may have felt a degree of fear, but that was not going to change their allegiance to the living God. They wanted their stand for God to be seen by all. They were not following God in secret and nor should we. Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Those watching from the sidelines may well have wondered where their God was and why he didn't protect them from being thrown into the flames. But God did have a purpose in allowing these three friends to go through this fiery trial rather than avoid it. It wasn't just the king's rage that was burning hot here. He had the furnaces stoked to such a degree that even the soldiers who threw the young men in were burned to death. The king wanted these disobedient, rebellious Jewish men to be incinerated almost immediately. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego could not have been more helpless. They were firmly tied up by some of the strongest soldiers and thrown into the furnace fully clothed. There was nothing that they could have done to help themselves. Their only hope was in God. Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisers, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Though Nebuchadnezzar did not fully recognize him, it really was the Son of God who was with them in the midst of the furnace. They were not alone. Jesus was with them in their hour of trial. And notice too that they were able to walk around in the fire unbound and unharmed. They may have gone into the furnace, hopelessly bound, but accompanied by Christ, even in the midst of their fiery trial, they were free. The fire may not have been extinguished, 
But the flames lost their power to harm when Christ was there. And that encourages me greatly because though our love of God may indeed bring us to a time of trial, he has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. In the midst of our trouble, he will be with us. And remarkably, his presence with us sets us free. And that which may have been designed to destroy us actually brings us closer to Christ and empowers us to walk free even in the midst of the trial. In my own life, I have experienced this to be true, though my own trials have certainly been very different to those of Daniel's friends. I too have known what it feels like to endure the flames of adversity, and I've also seen how God has been able to use the very trial I've endured to bring me to a new kind of freedom in Christ. Recently, I was caring for my husband, Colin, who was suffering through a chronic illness. I found myself in desperate need of support from my church, only to find that I really didn't have it. I worked at that particular church in a job that I loved, but then new leadership came in who decided to go in a new direction. Unfortunately, that new direction did not include me, and the way their decision was implemented was particularly hurtful. As my ministry there was coming to an end, my husband's condition worsened. Though I wanted to forgive and knew I needed to, I felt bound by all the pain and loneliness surrounding me. Before too many weeks, Colin's illness transitioned to acute myeloid leukemia, and eight days after that diagnosis, after 35 years of marriage, he stepped into the presence of Jesus. It felt as if I had fallen into the furnace, bound up by all kinds of pain and even unforgiveness toward the people I felt had abandoned me. It felt as if I had fallen into the furnace, bound up by all kinds of pain and even unforgiveness towards the people I felt had abandoned me. But then I began to realize that Jesus was with me. He always had been. He had never forsaken me, even when I felt so alone. And as I welcomed his comfort and relied on him more and more, a remarkable thing began to happen. I began to feel free. I let go of all the hurt that was wrapped around my heart. In a strange way, because of what I went through with Colin's death, I'm freer now than I was before because I no longer see things the way that I once did. The trial put it all into perspective for me. None of us know the road ahead of us, but I can assure you that even in the worst times, God will be with us. Despite what man may do to us, we can know true freedom in God's presence. God provides for those who put him first. Verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. Come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisers crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. 
You know, it's amazing to me that Nebuchadnezzar calls them servants of the Most High God. Throughout Scripture, God is referred to as being God Most High, and we realize how deeply this must have affected Nebuchadnezzar as he uses this title for their God, acknowledging him to be unlike any God he has ever heard about. Nebuchadnezzar was not the only one affected, actually. All of those watching crowded around, marveling at what they saw and did not see. None of the three men were burned anywhere on their bodies. Their hair and their garments were not even singed, and there wasn't even the smell of smoke on them. What an incredible display of God's power. And Nebuchadnezzar concludes in verse 28, saying, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angels and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. For the first time in his life, Nebuchadnezzar encountered someone more powerful than himself, someone more powerful than all the false gods he had worshipped. In fact, he acknowledged that no other god can save in this way. He also recognized that these men were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. And he acknowledged that such devotion should be honored shown by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These heroes of the faith may have endured a great trial of their faith, but they were blessed in the end. Their story cannot be taken lightly as something half forgotten from a time long ago. In describing the last years of life on earth as we know it, the book of Revelation exposes what the godless leaders of those end times will be like. In remarkably similar fashion to what happened in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, one of those worldly leaders will erect an image and demand that people fall down and worship it. So in many ways, what we see in Daniel is a foreshadowing of what is set to occur in those last days. I hope that none of us will be around to ever see it. But if we are, we need to remember this. As Christ followers, we cannot bow down to anything or anyone except him. We must stand for him, irrespective of the consequences. Like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, we are to do so unashamedly. We may wonder if we will have the strength to endure, but let me assure you that God equips those he calls by the power of the Holy Spirit. He can and will give the needed grace, wisdom and courage to meet whatever situation arises if we remain steadfast in our trust and devotion. He is with us and he will show himself strong on our behalf, strong to help us stand fast and strong to deliver us. 
Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are a God who whose hand is upon his people. Lord, you may not spare us from trial, but you protect us through it. And for this, we thank you. Let us be good ambassadors for Christ. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.